Welcome to Puckheads. Puckheads is a podcast all about the wonderful sport of hockey. We aim to cover the NHL from the standings to the great plays, as well as getting into debates about teams and other topics. I am Matt Rosenberg, joined by Zach Smith, and if you want to get involved with the podcast, you can email us at puckheadspodcast at gmail.com. Again, the email, puckheadspodcast at gmail.com. This is our inaugural podcast, Zach, uh, and... What better way, I think, to start a podcast about the NHL than to recap the zaniness that has been the Stanley Cup playoffs. We're going to get into the Stanley Cup final first, and then we'll kind of recap the playoffs as well, and uh, we'll see if we have some time talking about maybe some of the rule changes and a few signings and trades that happened actually earlier today. So uh, we talked about the Blues and the Bruins in really a black and blue Stanley Cup final to me, one of the nastiest Stanley Cup finals in terms of physicality that I remember. I, my thoughts when I watched this final, as I was watching it, is I thought about the Bruins and Canucks in 2011. It didn't have as much nastiness as that series did and contempt between the two teams. But there, there was a lot of big boy hitting. And Absolutely. I'd be surprised if n- nobody escaped with no ice pads in this series. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's it was very clear that while these teams don't really have that much history, they did not like each other starting game one. And, you know, there's great um, – a lot of these newer teams coming in are great with the finesse moves, but there's just something that I think is, you know, just beating the crap out of each other, playing some big hits. And, you know, obviously the skill is there. You've got some great players on both teams, but – Man, I think I got some bruises just watching it at home. It was intense for all seven games. They they deserve some time off after that one. Well, they do, and, and both teams will have about three and a half months off, as we know the season's very long for the two teams that make the Stanley Cup final. It'll be a short summer. So they'll be in the preseason actually three months pretty much from today. Uh, training camp's open probably less than three months. So getting into this series, the St. Louis Blues – they wind up winning Game 7 against the Boston Bruins on Boston's ice at the TD Garden to capture their first Stanley Cup in franchise history. Ends a 51-year wait for the St. Louis Blues. And they had never been, hadn't been back to a Cup Final since 1970 when they lost to the Boston Bruins. Yeah. An incredible story when you consider that the St. Louis Blues were in last place in the entire NHL Right after the New Year, January 3rd, they had, what, 34 points. And then they go on this terrific run, getting 65 points or uh, throughout the rest of the season. They actually had a chance to win their division in the last game of the season. Nashville Predators won it. But the St. Louis Blues, what a tremendous story for St. Louis to finally get that elusive Stanley Cup. Absolutely. And, I mean, even making it to the playoffs, considering the start they had, was incredible a story enough. Um, I mean, I can remember seeing them at the bottom of the standings and saying, wow, there's no way with this talent that this is where they should be. I mean, they're, they've been, the last few years, one of the top teams, especially in the conference. So, yeah, I mean, as a fan, you just got to love any team that finally, you know, gets the monkey off their back, finally gets that first win. Um yeah, real interesting series, considering that how much heartbreak St. Louis had to experience on their home ice. I mean, Boston really brought it to them. They really bought, brought it to Boston on their home ice. It was an interesting game where it seemed like the road wins were um, more elusive, or the home wins were more elusive than the road wins, and uh, something that I don't think we've seen quite that often. Home ice usually plays a big advantage. Yeah, you mentioned it. I believe it's the last four games of this series, the road team won. The road team won five of the seven games. And, I mean, you look at it, when Boston went into St. Louis, they just absolutely obliterated yeah, absolutely. them. Absolutely. And so uh, let's go to game seven specifically when we talk about this series and we talk about the hard hitting and everything. I'm watching that game seven on Wednesday night between – the teams and again uh, just a fantastic final first game seven we had had in eight years mm-hmm. in the Stanley Cup final and I'm watching it and the Boston Bruins are just taking it to the Blues in terms of possession time in the defensive zone in the offensive zone the Boston Bruins are just dominating possession time and they're getting all kinds of great A chances Jordan Biddington's on his game 
And it just seemed like the longer that period went on, you felt that maybe St. Louis just gets one chance, mm-hmm. and they do, with just a tremendous forecheck. Sammy Blades helped out, uh, Jaden Schwartz, Patrick Murray, and Ryan O'Reilly gets it around and works his way back to Jay Boomeister at the point. He shoots, it gets tipped by Ryan O'Reilly, and it goes through the five hole of two grass, and all of a sudden it's one nothing St. Louis. Yeah, I mean, first of all, Ryan O'Reilly, what a playoffs for him. I mean, he was an absolute uh, beast in every round and uh, a well-deserved con Smythe for him. But it's it's crazy. If you were to watch that um, that first period, you would think there's no way that Boston's not going to pull this off. Like you're saying, the physicality advantage, the shot differential. I mean, Bennington made some, some great saves throughout the game. Tuka Rask, man, you can't put any of the blame on him. He... He played a great game. As it went down, it just seemed each minute that passed, I don't think Boston's got it. it for every break to go uh, St. Louis's way early, it really just, you get that first goal from O'Reilly, and then once the second one towards the end for that first period, it takes the air out of the building. It's They're saying, okay, we, we've held them to four shots um, early on. We're dominating in every aspect, and we're down 2-0. Well, this should not be happening, especially on our home ice. Yeah, that's a good point that you brought up, is that, you know, the air just went out of the building, and, you know, listening to some other stuff, some other podcasts and stuff about the NHL, it's a good point, because I, you know, really thinking about that building was dead from the second period on, and I'm glad that you brought up the two goals, you know, on four shots. You know, this was a 15-4 to shot advantage. Boston had at the end of the first period, and Jordan Bennington probably had about five grade-A saves that he had to make because Boston, they came out, they were dominating the Blues. The Blues looked like they were just, you know, treading water. And as you mentioned, 15-4 to shot advantage, and you're down to nothing. And to me, the deflating goal came with eight seconds left in the period with Alex Petriangelo, James Schwartz makes a nice little bump in. Brad Marchand is literally just gas. He stands there and just tries to shove Schwartz, but it was like a half-hearted shove. And then he went to the bench. And I'm thinking as I'm watching it, when St. Louis got it with about 15 seconds to go, I'll go, oh, you know, it would be so bad if you dominate this period and St. Louis finds a way to score in the final seconds. And lo and behold, Petriangelo, on a very sweet move, forehand to backhand, Puts it past Tuka Rask, and it's 2 nothing. But if you're Brian Marchand, that's a bad line change. Yeah, absolutely. You can't make that change there. You're, I get it. You're gassed. All right, you're chasing these great athletes around. You got a 10, 15 seconds left. You need to make that back check. There's no way you can give up on that play. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. We see what happens. But in the moment, you see that happen, you know, okay, this is not a good move for him to go off the ice. Even if you're not going to catch him, even if you just put a little bit of pressure on him, you got to stay out there. There's no excuse for a play like that, especially from someone like Marshawn, who's such a, a good player and a smart player at that. Yeah, you think about it, right. With Marshawn, a, a good, smart player, a 100-point scorer, it's just it's a boneheaded move at the mm-hmm. wrong time, and it costs them. And, and I agree with you, Zach. That was the backbreaker, and I, I also agree with you. You can't blame this on Tukaras. No. Tukaras is the reason that the Boston Bruins got to a game mm-hmm. seven. That's the reason, the only reason why Boston got as far is because Tukaras was just stellar throughout the whole playoffs. Unfortunately, you look at it, we talked about the first goal. It's just a tip-in. But Boston had three chances to get the puck out of the zone before that, and that's ultimately, you know, when that when that happens, it's going to wind up in the back of your net. Bad bad line change on the second one. You left Tuka Rask out on an island. And, you know, and then going into the goals in the third, the third period, again, not Tuka Rask's fault when you have, you let Brainshed go right down the middle of the ice, point blank one-timer from the slot, what, 20 feet away. And then the fourth goal, I mean, that was just, you know, the Boston was done after yeah. the third goal. Yeah, there was, I mean, as you said, the only reason this goes to seven games is because of Tuka Rask, okay? He is one of the top, if not, obviously you can debate who you think the top goalie in the league. Tuka Rask is an all-star caliber, a Hall of Fame caliber player. He is the only reason that they're in this series and the only reason why possibly they make it to the Stanley Cup in some of their early series. And you can't fault him. I mean, those third and fourth goals, 
I mean, third one, Tarasenko makes a, an unbelievable pass through the legs, finds him perfect in the slot. That fourth one, and again, I notice it's Marshawn who's coming in late on the back check. He's about 20 feet back. There's no way he's catching him. And if, if that's a line change, if that's a blown assignment, who's to say? But that guy's on an island right there. He's got three defenders with him in the corner, and he beats all three to just lay it right on the doorstep for him to bury that fourth. And you can tell, I mean, Boston, they, you know, they score one goal, but you can just, there's no air in the place. Everyone knows that third goal, it's over. And the final, the final <laughs> nail in the coffin is really that fourth one wide open in front of the net. You're right. David Perron made a tremendous play. And then really, well, the fourth goal was meaningless. The one goal by Boston was meaningless. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Perron was just, that was a defeated team in St. Louis really putting that nail and going, you ain't coming back today, boys, no. from this. And I guess I was surprised because, you know, I was texting with Pat and Pat's, uh, Pat and I, you know, we're on Sports Weekly on Saturday mornings, and, and we're texting back and forth at the end of the second period, and he said, you know, it's done. And I said, I agree with you, except that it's 2 nothing if Boston gets a goal still in it. Mm-hmm. But the way that Boston came out in the third period, it, it was over when Jordan Bennington made that save on Joakim Nordstrom. Just another tremendous save with the pad. Because all Nordstrom has to do, and, and, and I'm visualizing, you know, hearing any old check, because we hear him on Blackhawks, you know, broadcast all the time. All the time. We should mention we're both, you know, Chicago-based. So, you know, we watch a lot of Blackhawks broadcasts. And you hear Eddie Olchek saying, what does he say all the time? You've got to elevate the mm-hmm. puck. And if Joaquin Nordstrom elevates the puck, it's a different game. It's 2-1 with 11 minutes to go. Yeah. It's, I mean, suddenly, uh, hats off to Bennington on that save. I mean, to even extend that far, there's no reason why that should not be a goal there. And... <laughs> As you say, that's a different game then. Finally, the crowd's in it, the team's in it, you get that adrenaline. A one-goal game, there's plenty of time for something to happen. But you could tell Boston felt that goal. Once it was taken away from them, that was about it. Bennington, absolutely amazing. I must have had four or five just outstanding saves in that third period to really solidify uh, St. Louis winning that game. He did. He was outstanding. As you mentioned, 32 saves on 33 shots, 15 in the first period, where the whole entire period was played in St. Louis's end for the majority of the part. You know, watching the game, I guess the way that I would describe that game seven, it's, it's like a boxing match. You have the one guy who's literally just pounding away, dominating the fight, and that was Boston. And St. Louis, meanwhile, they're the person in the short burst. The stem the momentum, just very briefly, they stung you. And that's what it was. It's Boston really dominated. They dominated on the scorecard with the punching in that first period. And then what happened is St. Louis got two short little burst punches that managed to just knock them on the ground. And that's what, what it was. It was, just, it was a relatively, I guess I'm disappointed in Boston's core. This is a core that's been the three Stanley Cup finals since 2011, 1-1. Lost two, lost two on home ice, losing to Chicago, now losing to St. Louis. But this is a Boston core that has been through so many playoff battles, where this St. Louis, you know, they've been through some playoff battles, but they have not been through the roads that Boston has. And for Boston to just come out after that first period with no passion in their game whatsoever in the final 40 minutes, to me was astounding and stunning with this kind of veteran core. I couldn't agree more. And In Game 6, we saw Marshawn get on the board with a great shot, and it seemed like that line finally came alive with him and Bergeron and Pasternak. It seemed like their their top guys were finally going to start get it, uh, getting it going. And you're like, that's what they need for Game 7 if they're going to have a chance. And it seemed like that whole series, you had third and fourth line production from Boston – but that top, those top guys never came alive. And you expect with the, the championship pedigree and the experience that they have. And, I mean, let's give it up. The defense of Boston played really solid. They got beat on some good plays, some lucky tips from St. Louis. That's just the way the game goes. Their offense was just disappointing. They had two great bursts in, uh, in St. Louis to win those two lopsided games. But other than that, I mean, their offense and especially those top guys, they were just disappointing throughout, throughout this entire series, I thought. It was. It was. It was very disappointing to watch that. And, and you know, I, I should mention that the road game won the last four. It was the last three. You know, that St. Louis won game four on home ice. But, you know, 
he was just disappearing. You know, Brad Marchand, he had one goal against a goalie, and that was game six on a five-on-three. But, you know, he had nothing else beyond that. He had an empty netter in game one. Uh, David Pasternak was non-existent. Patrice Bergeron, who I love watching play, it's, I mean, she was banged up, and but, you know, you're banged up at this time of the year, but I don't really put that on Bergeron because Bergeron's not the main goal scorer. Mm-hmm. It's Pasternak and Marchand, and they were non-existent. Nobody on David Krejci's line showed up. And, you know, it really was the defense and the secondary scoring for the most part for the Boston Bruins, and you brought up a good point. It was not 5-on-5, five five, though. And they're 5-on-5. Five five. They got dominated by St. Louis the entire series, 5-on-5. Five five. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, the goalie play on both teams, Bennington and Rask, was phenomenal throughout the series, despite, you know, a couple games that um, were pretty much blowouts. That's really why this goes to seven, because St. Louis is dominating in almost every aspect of the game, and in many ways beating Boston in their own game. They love that physical style black and blue, beat them up, make sure that they're physically exhausted. And it just seemed like, and to use your anal- your boxing analogy from earlier, every time that Boston finally threw a good shot, St. Louis got right back up and they delivered with a couple more of their own. They couldn't do enough to knock out St. Louis. And in Game 7, we saw them just outlast them for the entire 60 minutes of it. So uh, let's go and let, let's talk about Boston very quickly here in terms of what do we blame the blame on the loss for? We, we both said that it's not Tuukka Rask's fault. He's the reason that they were there. Do we blame it on the fact that their defense really wasn't pushing the puck for the most part in the series? Do we lay the blame on the first line? Or do we lay the blame on the fact that three times they lost at home? A very good home team lost three times mm-hmm. at home. Yeah, I mean, I... As mentioned before, I put it on those top scores, the ones that you're counting on at that time. When you're in the Stanley Cup Finals, you need your best to be the best. And they got that out of Rask. They got that, for the most part, out of their defense. I mean, they've got some young guys who just have, have been amazing these last couple of years coming out. And, of course, you've got, you've got Chara. The you know, Has he been playing for 50 years now, it seems like? he's <laughs> And to play out there with a broken jaw, that guy is a, is a true pro. So, you know, it's I put it on the top line. They need to use that home ice advantage. They need to score more than they did in, in times that are meaningful in these games. And it's just unacceptable to lose that many times on your home ice when you're at the pedigree of a team like Boston. It's, it's just unacceptable. And the fact that St. Louis was a better team on the road, some teams are like that. Some teams like that adrenaline. It works out. If you're Boston, you can't let that happen. You need to dominate on home ice, and they just didn't get it done. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you hit the nail. You had games five and game seven at home. Lost both of them. It, it, it's a disappointing end for the Boston Bruins. And, you, you know, it, it was just it was stunning to watch the fact that they just came out completely flat, you, you know, after the first period because I think they were stunned. They were stunned by the Petriangelo goal to make it to nothing. Um, and I agree with you. I, I think three losing three out of four is unacceptable. But I think the main blame for this has to go on that top six and the fact that they were very inefficient and nothing happened, you know, of consequence. And and it, it's going to be interesting now because Boston fans have had a love-hate relationship with Tuka Rask. Mm-hmm. And I feel that this loss, because of the fact that it was so lopsided and... You know, he gave up four goals, which I don't think he could be blamed about any of them. You know, they're going to look at the fact now that Tim Thomas won the Cup in 2011. Tuka Rass did not have played well in the Stanley Cup final in 2013. He didn't have his best game when you look at a stats you know, standpoint mm-hmm. because he only made 16 out of 20 saves. And, you know, you can look at maybe the first one that he always should have saved. But, I, again, I don't really think that there's anything to be blamed by him there. You know, your defender shouldn't let Ryan O'Reilly be able to get his stick free mm-hmm. and be able to tip it on what was a, you know, not a great shot by Bowmeister. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how, what kind of reaction Tuka Rask gets from Boston because he was getting some bronze cheers there in the third period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if you look at Boston in general as a sports town, they they expect 
greatness, no matter what. I mean, I was joking around with some of my friends that, man, if Boston pulls this out, they've got the Patriots, they've got the Red Sox, Boston, Celtics, you know, lost the second round. They could have won three of the four major championships, and that's remarkable in, in all sense of what it means to be a great sports town. And it always happens where someone gets blamed who's maybe not um, actually at fault. So, again, you look at this, the stats of Rask's game. It doesn't look great, but if you actually watch the series, you understand that he's the reason why they're in this game, uh, why they make it to seven in general, why they make it to the cup finals in general. So if I'm putting blame, like we've talked about, it's going to be on those top scores, but Rask is going to be an easy scapegoat considering he's now 0 for 2 in the finals. Right, a- absolutely. And, and it's unfair to Tuka Rask because he would have been the consummate, I think, had they not gotten beat 4-1. Mm-hmm. to one. Absolutely. Uh, You know, if they got beat 2-1, to one, I think Tuka Rask is the consummate. He had like a 95% save percentage of the goals against him, under 2 for the entire playoffs. Yeah, it's absolutely he, disgust if, if it's a close game. Yeah. Right, yeah, he, he was the best player to me in the entire playoffs. And, and I mean, Ryan O'Reilly deserves the consummate. And uh, you know, we'll get into him in a minute, but Tuka Rask just was phenomenal. And, and for this Boston team, I mean, look, they got young, they're young on the blue line. You got Tori Krug, you got Grenzelik, you got a lot of young pieces. Uh, McAvoy, as well as Sedano Char, is going to be back for another year. The ageless wonder. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I felt bad for Sedano Chara because coming back from a broken jaw and then to have your forwards literally just not back check, not do anything in game seven. The biggest game of your life after you had Patrice Bergeron and Sedato Char talk to this team before game six and motivate them. You know, it was just, you know, the back checking just got to me. Was, the times that St. Louis could get the puck, they were able to get through there because the forwards were just not coming back, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how, if you feel the same way as I do about this. Boston, the last couple years, has been. Um, mediocre at best let's say they haven't been what we expected them to be in the early 2010s um they're those top guys you're mentioning all these great young guys it seems like this might have been the last chance for those top big name boston broom players to have chara bergeron grass come out it it might have seemed like that window and that part of the boston bruins history is closing and it's going to go to a newer maybe faster, more skill instead of that black and blue style game in the next few years, we might see a changing of the tide for the Boston Bruins. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because when you look at the historical context of this core and what they're going to be remembered for, I think that, yeah, they're going to be remembered as guys. They got it done against Vancouver, but they couldn't get it done against St. Louis. And, and I think we would absolutely be in agreement that the best of the three teams that they went up against in the final were the Blackhawks mm-hmm. in 2013. Because that was a very, very good Blackhawks yes, team in 2013 was. in the, the lockout short season. Which, I mean, if you look at it, the Blackhawks were on pace for the same amount of wins that the Tampa Bay Lightning got mm-hmm. if there was over a full season. You know, or 60 or so, right around there. So, um, yeah, I, I think that it is fair to say, look, the, these guys could be legendary had they won a second cup for Chara and, and Bergeron. And I think it's 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 unfair in, in, in a way it's because it's so hard to win a Stanley Cup, let alone two or three. You know, we're very familiar with that. Having watched the Blackhawks, having watched the Kings, having watched all those teams, it's just it's very, very hard. But it's not like the NBA where, you know, you, you're very top-heavy. It's anybody can wind up winning the Cup, much like the St. Louis Blues did this year, which I think we need to talk about a couple more pieces of theirs. And the fact that, you know, you fire Mike Yale at in November. Craig Berube comes in. By the way, still in Game 7 was the interim head coach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think they should get that uh, that interim taken out of there. He might... He might be a good uh, a good keeper at this point. I would not be surprised if during the parade tomorrow, we should say we're recording this on Friday, so it'll probably drop on Saturday. If on the parade tomorrow, Saturday, June 15th, you hear during the parade that he's signed an extension, mm-hmm. because obviously he is. I heard rumors that they didn't want to name him the head coach because they were superstitious, as hockey players are, that we should keep announcing him as the interim head coach. I, yeah, I would agree <laughs> we should. 
So I think they should just still announce him as the interim head coach like three years from now. Um, you know, still interim after yeah. three years. Uh, but, you know, Craig Berube just he turned this team around. He's a very no-nonsense guy, tells it like it is, which is uh, a very nice and refreshing style. And yet this was a team that even two months after he took over, 34 points, last in the NHL, uh, right after the Winter Classic, and all of a sudden this team takes off with Jordan Bennington. And Jordan Bennington, who was, what, 16-4 and four or something like that after a loss, which is just a ridiculous number, like 16-4 and four since he came in as a goaltender. This is the guy who was fourth on the goaltender depth chart this year. Yeah, and it seems almost like, you know, fate for it to happen this way. This guy's named the interim head coach. He's got this this history with Bennington, who's, you know, he's a rookie. He's a no-namer. Uh, he comes in, he just lights it up, they catch fire, and that seems to be the biggest change uh, to the overall culture of St. Louis. And you got to think that maybe there's some, you know, with hockey players being superstitious and, and fate and having that conversation – do they get there with Bennington coming in and lighting this fire into the entire team? And then you just see they go quite literally from last to first over the span of just a few months. It's quite remarkable that it ended up playing out the way that it did. It did. And, you know, going into the playoffs, I really felt that the Blues were a hot team because of what they had been playing. They had a franchise record, 11-game winning streak, uh, February, March. And it was just remarkable to watch this Blues team come together, a team that just could not get out of their own way. They were having issues. And and the fact is, they were so comfortable on the road. And they're the first team in NHL history to win the Stanley Cup and have a losing record at home. They were 6-7 and seven at home, and they were, what, 10-3 on the road? Yeah, just remarkable. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy. You think about, and you touched on it a little earlier, some of these newer teams coming in. You know, they have no championship pedigree on their team going into this. So you think the what it takes for them to get to this point, that's a lot of it's a lot of willing from everyone on your team. It's a lot of motivation. It's a lot of belief in each other because you don't have anyone in that locker room who can say, you know, at this point, this is where we are. But we're talking about some of these teams that went on great runs in this decade. You've got, of course, the Kings, you have the Blackhawks. We know in hockey, much more than any other sport, it's when you get hot that matters. So I can remember, obviously, being a Chicago homer, watching Chicago look like they're limping into the playoffs in some of their some of the years that they won the Cup. And then that last week or two, they turn it on, and they're untouchable. Same thing with the Kings. There's no way that you think this eight seed's going to come in and start sweeping all these top seeds. When you get hot, you're hot. It just seemed like once St. Louis took off, they never let their foot off the gas pedal. And now they end up with the cup. Yeah, what was it? Was it in 2015? I think they, they didn't even care about the seed. The Hawks just got in. And, you know, because you would sell the LA Kings do it as an eight seed. And the LA Kings didn't care if they won a division or not. And um, so, yeah, you saw that. And you're right. I mean, they just they gelled together as a team. And, I mean, you give credit to Doug Armstrong. He didn't blow off the team when he could have. Uh, this was a team that deserved to be blown off in the last place. So. It's going to be interesting, like, does this make NHL GMs more patient or stuff like that after seeing what the St. Louis Blues did? I mean, you know, because you can make the case now that literally anybody can win the cup when you're the 31st ranked team in the NHL. After the new year, you're almost halfway through the season, and you wind up winning the cup. It's just, it's incredible. And I think it was led by players like Petra Angelo. It was led by Ryan O'Reilly. What a story. You know, we talked about, we touched about Bennington. Let's talk about... Ryan O'Reilly, and the fact that this is a guy who literally at this time last year said that he lost love for hockey, didn't like playing in Buffalo, and all this, and in the span of 12 years, he just rediscovers this love for the game. Uh, a guy who I think just he got tired by the culture in Buffalo. That's what I think he got tired of. And winds up winning the Smite. He gets goals in four straight games in the Stanley Cup, the last four. The only other player to do that in Stanley Cup final history is Wayne Gretzky. And so you're pretty rarefied there. He scores the most points in the Stanley Cup final with nine. Five goals, four assists. He ties for the lead in the NHL with 23 points in the Stanley Cup playoffs with Brad Marchand. So just a tremendous 
tremendous Stanley Cup. Oh, and by the way, he had a cracked rib in the first round and has played through that for the last six weeks. <laughs> I mean, you can tell. Big fan of Ryan O'Reilly. It's it's hard when you're in a culture that where you're not winning, you feel like the team's not as motivated as you might be. I can see how it's easy to fall in, into a, a little bit of a lull in that point. And it's obvious the guy is talented because even going through the motions, he would put up solid numbers. Um, he was, you know, nothing to laugh at there. But you could just see the fire and the passion in his eyes. Every time he's out there, he's willing to do whatever it takes to win. Does he have to back check? Obviously, he's going to score. He's going to facilitate on the offensive side. Is he going to be that leader that we know that he can be? And you see he comes to St. Louis, and it's that culture change that we often see sparks a player, and he was just unbelievable watching just how hard he was working in every game. I don't think I saw him take a single playoff. And you can't say that, as we mentioned earlier, about all the other players, especially on the other side. No, absolutely not. Yeah, he was fantastic. He was always in the middle of something. All the clutch plays for St. Louis, they had Ryan O'Reilly right smack dab in the middle of it. And I think it was was tremendous watching Ryan O'Reilly. So you, you look at this, and we talked about the journeys of O'Reilly and Bennington. Uh, let's talk Pat, Pat Maroon, the hometown boy, winds up bringing the cup to St. Louis, signed a discount one-year deal. Uh, just so many good stories for the St. Louis, that's the city, and the Blues team. How about Jay Boomeister? It took him, uh, you know, Boomeister, took him, what, almost 800 games to play a playoff game, the 1,259 games, and he finally gets to lift the Stanley Cup. And that's what's great about, obviously, all sports, but really hockey. You more than not always see when that team's celebrating, you'll see the captain get the cup first, he'll have his moment, but they always go to those veteran guys that have been sticking it out for close to two decades who have come in with the team. Maybe they're not a top liner. Maybe they're there just for the culture. They're there to you know teach the young guys, and you see it finally pay off with these guys on here. And I mean, it's just an awesome, as a hockey fan, you don't even have to be a Blues fan to watch players like that finally make it to the playoffs for the first time, win a cup for the first time, to see in their eyes, you know, this is what they've dedicated their entire lives to, and to see it finally pay off, it's always, I think, remarkable and a memorable experience to watch as they're lifting the cup. Yeah, it's always fun to see Lord Staley be parading around on ice. I think it's just, it's great. To, to watch that and see that. So, all right, let's get to a little bit of playoff recap. Let's recap the whole playoffs. I, I know you want to get into that, Zach. Uh, it, just, again, another tremendous tournament. It's hard to believe that it was only two months ago that it started because it feels like a year. And, and as everybody knows, I'm a big fan of West Coast hockey, even when it uh, interferes with my sleep schedule for work the next day, which I get up early for work. So, uh, you know, I, I thought it started in the first round. Um, I, I want to get some of your your highlights or some of your personal favorite moments of the playoffs. You know, I think the story of this playoffs in particular is those original six blue blood teams that we know and love that have been controlling the league for the last 10, 15 years. It seemed really like the turning of the tide for a lot of them. You watch the Lightning, and, you know, they haven't um, – they've been great the last few years, but you don't put them in the same mark as maybe like a Boston-Chicago team like that. But they have this amazing regular season, one of the best we've ever seen, and they get swept. You watch the Penguins go down. You watch – I mean, Boston was really the only blue-collar team that made it past there. I love watching these new young players, these new young teams come in, take their moment. It really looks like the new face of the NHL. It really does, and that's one of the topics that we're going to get in over the summer, especially once we get past free agency. We're going to talk about can any of these more traditional powers that we've seen over the last 10 years, can they rebound? Because to me, this is the year more than any other that we've seen, as you said, more young faces. We saw the Hurricanes make it to the Eastern Conference Final, uh, the Blues, which have been They've been in the playoffs and out at times, but they usually seem to only get to the first round and out. Maybe the second round appearance. They were in the conference final a couple years ago, but that's the only conference final appearance in a long time for the Blues before this year. You saw the Colorado Avalanche with a great run. Uh, So it's going to be very interesting because this year really does remind me a little bit of 2017 for some of these traditional uh, teams in that 
you're kind of starting to see, okay, are they slipping off that mountain? Because we saw it with the Blackhawks in 2017 after they got swept by the Nashville Predators. And I think the Kings, the Ducks, the Penguins are in very similar straits. I don't think the Capitals are there yet because I still think their window is more open than probably some of these other teams. But we're definitely going to talk about of those four teams and see if we come up with another one or two. Is there one that's looking for a rebound that could come back? Or is there a window and do they have to blow everything up as their window passed? So that's a great point. Yeah, it definitely looks like, I mean, again, as a fan of hockey, I'm sitting there in the second round and saying, I think the team with the most championship pedigree on this Western Conference side might be the Sharks. And that's, you know, a little odd considering they've, you know, they made it. They lost to Pittsburgh a few years back. But it's always in my eyes, fun to see these new young players come in to see the game uh, get a little faster, a little more uh, skill set in these players. And again, as we talk more in, in later episodes about some of these traditional teams, what is it going to take for them to remain a consistent playoff and championship contender? And is their window closed? Right. Yeah, you mentioned... With all these teams, has their window closed, and, and it's it's going to be a fun debate to have in the summer in the dead time of NHL, which it's like the one sport that has, well, that in baseball, because nobody signs anybody in baseball <laughs> until clearly June. Um, you know, but really you look at it, and hockey does have, it's nice because hockey does have that dead period from basically, basically like July 5th, 10th, to about September, mm-hmm. which is it's nice because I think everybody needs it after the Stanley Cup run. You probably do need about a month to recuperate just that that way, and everybody will get it after the uh, the acquisition period uh, finishes in the next couple of weeks. So, uh, yeah, let's recap really quickly. You mentioned the Lightning getting swept after tying the NHL record for most wins in a regular season. The Penguins, you also mentioned, they got swept by Barry Trotz's Islanders. Uh, in the first round, uh, going oh, staying in the Eastern Conference, you get the Hurricanes winning a double overtime to knock out the Capitals in the first round. It just a tremendous, tremendous series. Remember, the Capitals were up three two. The Hurricanes wound up winning the last two games. Justin Williams with the assist to Jamie McGinn uh, for the game winner in double overtime, and the Hurricanes knocked out the defending champs in the first round. A great effort by the Washington Capitals. And also in the Eastern Conference, in the first round, you had the Boston Bruins and the Toronto Maple Leafs going again to a Game 7 for the third time in a row that they've met in the playoffs. Second two years in a row. And the Boston Bruins again coming out on top over the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, and it's I want to touch on the Hurricanes for a second because... I saw that they were, you know, the topic of a lot of controversy is their uh, home ice celebrating getting too much. Are they, um, you know, are they going a little over the top? Personally, I loved it. I thought it was fun. It was great for a team that traditionally doesn't have a huge hockey following down in Carolina. Um, For them to really bring some more energy and passion into that city, into that region, really, because you're in an area where there's not a lot of hockey teams concentrated in in those uh, bigger markets down there. I thought that was fun to see, a great a great series with Washington. Um, but you touch on it, we've got some great young teams coming in. Personally, I'm already looking forward to Boston and Toronto round three. I think Toronto's finally getting to that point where a lot of their young players are going to get over that hill. They're finally going to be able to, to make it to the second round and, and be a true championship contender. But it, like I said before, it looks like the young, new teams, at least in the Eastern Conference, outside of Boston, they really were the story in that first round. Yeah, they were. You're right. It was you know nice to see some new teams in there in the second round and, and be able to actually do something in the playoffs. And 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 hockey's weird. Hockey is weird, especially that you know that first round of the playoffs. You never know what's going to happen. Speaking of which, you never know what's going to happen. Let's get to the Western Conference portion of that first round. Um, you had the Nashville Predators losing to the Dallas Stars in seven games. Was it seven or was it six? I think it was seven. Yeah, I think it was seven sure. now that I think about it. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. No, you know what? It was six. It was the Dallas. It was a double overtime game winner. 
by John Klingberg. That's right. And that was it. I was like, no, they didn't celebrate that wildly in Nashville. But Dallas knocked them off. St. Louis and Winnipeg are one of the weirdest series to me in that Winnipeg, you know, the road team won the first five games. St. Louis finally winning a whole game in game six. But you looked at it and it was just crazy because St. Louis comes out like game busters in Winnipeg and then Winnipeg winds up responding. And you know, it looked like, okay, maybe they're getting a little healthy. They didn't really have anything left in the tank by the time game six came around. St. Louis won a very physical and nasty series. Looking forward to watching those two teams square off in the regular season next year. And then you go to the Pacific Division. And it's just one of the weirdest things. You have Calgary, who wins the Western Conference, and they're out in five games. Kale McCarr really came in and made an impact on that Colorado team. And then you have San Jose and Vegas. Vegas goes up 3-1. I thought the series was over. We get to game seven, and in a horrible call, a horrible penalty call, Cody Eakin gets thrown out of the game on the faceoff. Joe Pavelski's head hits the ice. He, he's not the conscious. It was gruesome to watch. I saw it in person. And at first, you know, realized, and then watching, that's a two-minute minor. They call it a five-minute major. San Jose is just, there's a fire that's lit under them. And they wind up scoring four power play goals. And to me, it was watching Logan Couture get that first goal like seven seconds into the power play and looking at the bench and going, that's one. <laughs> and they wind up getting four power play goals. Then Vegas pulls the goalie at the end. They tie the game. It goes into overtime. San Jose wins with about a minute and a half left in the first overtime. And, yes, it was a bad call. But if you're Vegas, and their defense was horrendous on that penalty kill. I mean, there were just open shooting lanes. It was open season on Mark andre Fleury. You can't allow San Jose to get four power play goals. You can't allow San Jose to tie the game there. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm watching to see of, of these young, newer teams in the West in round one, who's really going to make the biggest statement and who looks like they're going to, you know, make their claim as the top team in the conference. And when Calgary goes down, in my in my mind, I'm thinking Vegas was a great story last year. It looks like they're staking their claim as the top team in the West. They've got now some experience being in these moments. You watch them go up a few games early, and I'm thinking Vegas is going to, you know, they're going to walk through this one. And then you get to that crazy game seven, and there's no excuse, a bad call. We agree it shouldn't have been a major you still cannot allow that to happen. And to watch, I mean, I'm a big Flurry fan. I like him a lot. It was just open season on him. And the Sharks have some good players. That's that's never supposed to happen. You should not be giving up that many goals in such a short amount of time. And once you, I think once you see that second goal scored by San Jose, you start to feel the tide change a little bit. And, oh, no, this does not look good for the uh, Vegas yeah, it, it didn't. It, it didn't. And and just watching it and seeing it in person, as soon as San Jose got that first one, I'm like, they're going to come back and tie this game and probably win it. And they wound up having to lead. And it, that was one of the craziest Game 7s I, I, I had. In, and really, every Game 7 that we had in these playoffs delivered. And, I mean, they were all great going into the next round. I mean, we had a classic Game 7 between the Blues and the Dallas Stars. Patrick Maroon, hometown boy, tipping in the shot past Ben Bishop. It was one of the best goaltending games. I remember Ben Bishop was amazing in that game and was carrying that Stars team because the Blues were dominating play. And Jordan Bennington was great. I mean, there was back and forth at one point in the first overtime. In the second overtime, Bishop was literally just having to make save after save on a Dallas team that is just had nothing left in the tank. St. Louis, of course, wins in double overtime. San Jose beats Colorado on a controversial offsides call for Colorado. They can't get to the bench fast enough, and it wipes out a goal, and San Jose winds up winning the Game 7 against Colorado to go to the Western Conference Final. On the Eastern side, you had the Islanders shockingly getting swept by the Carolina Hurricanes in a series that featured a game where the starting goaltender for Carolina, Peter Morazic, got injured. Curtis McElhaney came in in Game 2 to relieve him, gets the win, and then wins Games 3 and 4 in Carolina. And then what was another entertaining series in the second round? Boston and Columbus. 
I, and I, I think Columbus, because we're so far removed now, and now that we're done with the Stanley Cup, what Columbus did to Tampa Bay was phenomenal and amazing. They just literally took Tampa Bay and they gave them a whooping. And then to see, they played hard against Boston, and Columbus really did, you know, they just, they got outworked at the end by Boston. Boston got those few, you know, little puck luck bounces, win a battle here or there, and they got the goals that they needed. But Boston wins in six, a, a tremendous series. Yeah, and I think you see, especially in that one with Boston and Columbus, Boston's game, what they like to play, that black and blue style, it finally takes over. And give it up to Columbus because they had a great run. Um, it's hard to play a physical game like that. And you can tell, you might take the first hit and shake it off. After that fifth, sixth, seventh hit, that really puts you on your butt. It gets hard to, to keep up. And, um, you know, you get a little timid going into the corner with some of these big guys on Boston. They gave it a great fight, though, for a young team. I think, like you said, we've got some great series in the first round and then you see some of these teams that look like okay this might be their year the islanders come out and absolutely dominate a few of their games against pittsburgh were close but in all respect they dominate pittsburgh and then they come up and they look like they've never played hockey before against the hurricanes they take care of them pretty easily but man some of these great great games these overtime games these game sevens you can see it's just it's one play that goes your way. It's one call that maybe doesn't go your way, and it changes the whole thing, and it changes the entire face of the playoffs. Yeah, it does, and it's just it's you. Know, we don't know what would have happened, especially that Vegas San Jose series. If they had called the penalty correctly, the San Jose even come back. And then you're right; it could change the entire tenor of the playoffs. We we're, we're you know we're, we're we're talking about Vegas versus Colorado, then who wins and plays St. Louis. It, it, you know, so it really does change the tenor in the playoffs, and it's something that's going to have to get fixed in terms of making calls more accurately, and I'm not entirely sure how you do that. But but very quickly, going to the conference finals, you had the Boston Bruins sweeping the Hurricanes uh, and then getting a lot of rest, which they probably needed after their physical first two series, and then you had the St. Louis Blues beating the Sharks in sits, and it was the way, again, the St. Louis team, and I think maybe because of the struggles early on, they knew how to respond to adversity. I go back to Game 3 with the hand, pan, the hand pass goal in overtime um, to win the game. They might have been double overtime. Uh, where Timo Meyer just whacks it across, and Eric Carlson p- puts it in the back of the net. It was very clearly a hand pass. The NHL can't review it, though, because of their re- replay review rules. But then St. Louis wins the next three in a row. And especially that in that Western Conference, man, I, I go back to that Game 5 and say, say where they just ran San Jose out of their own building. And literally every time the puck went in the San Jose zone, there was a defenseman who was getting run through the boards. You were seeing the glass shaking by that St. Louis forecheck, which is a main reason why they won the Stanley Cup, because they just wore teams down physically. Yeah, and that's where you see that physical play starts to come in because it's a long regular season. But as you mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, this episode, it feels like the playoffs go on for half a year. And to have that sort of uh, that pain and punishment on your body for that long, you can see. And I think with the Blues going from being the bottom of the league to where they're at now and, you know, they're a few games away from the cup finals at this point, they, they know how to play with reckless abandonment because for them, getting to the playoffs was not guaranteed. So they knew each win – starting from January 3rd on, had to be earned. No one was going to give it to them. That was made very clear in the first couple months of the season. And you see, when you have your offensive players strong on the forecheck and they're the ones that are initiating the physical play, it changes the entire identity of a team. And you see the Sharks, they couldn't respond to it. Yeah, you're right. And then, of course, we know how the Stanley Cup final ended up with the St. Louis Blues being the Boston Bruins in seven. One final stat from the whole playoffs as a whole. Teams that swept the series lost in that series all four times. And two teams suffered the reverse sweep after sweeping the team, the Islanders and the Hurricanes, of course. Uh, and this was the only time that the President's Trophy winners have been swept in a playoff, which was just astounding to see the team that literally just ran through the regular season get swept. 
Um, it was interesting. Of course, the playoffs are always a roller coaster. You never know, as you mentioned, what's going to happen. Uh, we do know that the competition committee did meet. Sometimes, you know, reaction to some of the stuff, they are going to allow referees to review some calls that they made. It's a little bit more uh, power that they have. It's obviously a reaction to the Cody Eakin uh, getting thrown out of Game 7 unfairly uh, because of the injury. Because literally they looked up at the board and saw Pavelski with blood coming out in the ice and assumed there was a major when really the worst of it was Paul Stasny going through because Pavelski was off balance and Stasny is rightfully going for the puck as he's entitled to and he caught Joe Pavelski off balance. So that's one of the rule changes that's on the table. It's got to be approved by the NHL and the NHLPA and there's like four things of red tape. It's got to be uh, approved. The other thing that I found interesting in all these rule changes and they might be confirmed later on in the next couple of weeks. If a player loses his helmet, they have got to go off the ice immediately. So no more Tory Krug losing your helmet and going to run over somebody, which I'm, I mean, I, I get it for protection, you know, and, and it's the right thing to do. But uh, it, it does seem like an odd overreaction. But again, maybe it's because the game's played at such a high speed now. And I agree. And uh, I probably more than anyone like watching Krug's hair blown in the wind as he's, you know, it seems like maybe he's not actually, you know, getting his helmet on 100% because he just wants everyone to see that flow that he's got. But I get it. It's hard as a player. If you see a guy lose his helmet, then he comes at you. It makes you a bit timid because if you then play at 100% and an injury happens, you're looking at a possible major, you're looking at a possible suspension. Right. It really, I get the whole safety versus the, the physicality of the game debate. That makes sense to me. I think you lose your helmet, if nothing for your safety, for everyone else's ability to play the game at a normal level. Um, it's at least a topic worth considering. I agree. I agree. And like we said, you know, I, I think... Well said. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Um, putts over the glass. Probably going to be reviewable next uh, year. May maybe into the back of the net. There's a couple other uh, rule changes in terms of uh, tie-breaking procedures for standings and stuff like that. But and, as they come about uh, through the summer, which I believe that they're going to have bigger uh, union meetings and league meetings this week in Vancouver when they go to the NHL draft. Uh, which is coming up next week. It's, it's hard to believe it's a week away. Um, really, you know, but it's here, and I'm excited about it. I love the NHL draft. It's it's always fun, especially in the first round. First round's fun because you know there's going to be some kind of crazy trade either before or during the round. Uh, usually you see a couple trades, so I think it's going to be fun. NHL draft weekend, as always, it'll be in Vancouver. That's Friday. It's around one, rounds two through seven. Next Saturday. Uh, if we have a chance before next Friday to drop another pod on the draft, we will uh, do that with some kind of review of some of the big prospects and maybe where we think some of the guys are going to go. We we will not do a full first round draft, <laughs> mock draft. We, we just yeah, it's sorry, not going to happen. Sorry, everyone. Not not, not, not this year. Maybe next year. But but you know, let us establish ourselves first. Um, you know, but I, I can tell you who the first pick is going to be if you want to be spoiled. Probably to be Jack Hughes. Yeah, that's pretty much a no-brainer, and I I agree with you. the The free agency, the the trades that go down around the draft is always fun uh, to see those teams shaken up, and you can tell who's uh, who's doubling down on their championship window. I just thought watching the draft lottery, it really did not go the way of those top teams. I mean, as a Chicago homer, obviously you see them jump about seven or eight spots. That makes me happy. But you're looking at these top teams that are projected to get some really great players, and they still will in the first round, obviously. Yeah. But the lottery did not go well for those bottom teams. What do you feel about that? No, you're right. It did not. Um, let's see. Colorado went from first to four, which, I mean, they still win because Ottawa was just dumb enough to – see, okay, here's my thinking. I'm watching the draft last year. And if I'm Ottawa, and you have literally until the moment that they make the pick, I would have given Colorado my fourth pick, the fourth overall pick last year, realizing I'm going to blow up the team. Eric Carlson's not going to be on it. Mark Stone's not going to be on it. My team's going to be awful, and I'm going to get no worse than the fourth pick. I mean, Ottawa's, the, Ottawa was the winner of the draft lottery because Colorado didn't win it. 
Um, but no, Colorado didn't get it. They're still going to get a phenomenal player at four. And then they have their own pick at 16, I think. Um, L.A. fell three spots. I'm trying to think who was... And Detroit was the third best team, and they fell three spots. Literally, I mean, you had the Hawks go from 12 to 3. Uh, the Rangers were, I want to say, somewhere around 8 or 9. And the Devils were about 6. Or maybe I, I might have it flipped. I think the Rangers were at 6, and the Devils were around 8 or 9. They went up, and yeah, it's just it's tremendous. Um, for those teams, yeah, for the other teams, not a, not a lot of luck. But I think... That that's kind of what you want a lottery to be. You don't want it to be too predictable. Much like how the NBA kind of lowered the odds for, you know, some of the better teams or like in terms of having, you know, worse seasons, you know, they wanted to make it a little bit harder. I, I think that that's it, it's a good thing because it doesn't just say, Oh, I can take and it's harder to take in hockey anyway with basketball, but you you know, you don't have to worry about taking or anything like that because you know, teams won. And I think it also goes to show that you, you know, I don't know, maybe it has to be changed in terms of the way they do the lottery. I've heard something like when you get eliminated, then as many points as you get, that's how you determine the lottery order. I see a hole with that, just in terms of if you get eliminated at the end of the season, how, how do you determine it? Mm-hmm. You know, so, but I, I can understand that. So, yeah, yeah, they did not have a whole lot of luck, but they're still going to get tremendous players. I mean, there's, what, five or six studs on the U.S. National Development Team. Uh, you have Capo Cacao, who's going to go probably second overall. Alex Turcotte, who is a local boy from Illinois. He's from Island Lake. Um, so actually a Lake County boy. We both live in Lake County. This Lake County, McHenry yeah. County border. Uh, you have uh, Trevor Segris, Dylan Cousins, Cole Caulfield, Kirby Dock, uh, Byron Byron, you know, who's, or, you know, Byron Bowen was going to be, you know, or was it Bowen Byron? I never get his name right, yeah. but he's the top Close defenseman. Enough. Yes. <laughs> he, he, I should know. I literally was just listening to another podcast before this. Uh, you know, hockey on the drive over here. So, all right, uh, really quickly, let's get to a few free agent notes, and then we will end this and wrap this up. So, uh, really quickly today, Jordan Everlay re-signs with the Islanders for five years, $27.5 million. That's a $5.5 million cap hit. He has a no-trade clause the first two years of the contract. And the Capitals trade Matt Niskanen to the Flyers for Gudas. So, a swap of defensemen. And the Flyers also retain 30% of Gudras' contract. So, uh, some time, some money freed up for the Capitals to try to re-sign some players. There's going to be a whole lot more in this coming in the next couple of weeks. It's a fun time because there's a lot of teams and a lot of cap space out there. So it's going to be fun, and we'll talk free agency as it gets closer. The free agent period to start talking to players, it's June 24th if you are a UFA, and it's June 27th if you are an RFA. And perhaps another notable RFA, who I'm sure is going to be locked up, the winning goalie who set the rookie record for most wins in the Stanley Cup playoffs, Jordan Bennington, with 16. He is an RFA. The Blues are going to be now forced to have to pay him a lot of money. Mm-hmm. He's I, definitely getting a pay raise after this performance. Oh, yeah. Uh, 650000 going to probably be going up by about 10 times. <laughs> so I'm sure he's going to be in the six, seven million range. I don't know what he gets because I don't know what, you know, it's a small sample size, but he wouldn't get a cup. And he came up big in Game 7. Absolutely. It's... It's always a fun free agency period. There's always hockey. I think more than probably any other sport, there's always trades trying to get within the cap limits. It's always going to be, um, each offseason is going to be a fun adventure for a lot of great teams, a lot of great players, and we'll see how it affects the landscape of the league moving forward. Yeah, it, the landscape is always shifting in the NHL, and it will start shifting some more with the NHL draft next Friday evening in the first round in Vancouver. So, you have fun, Zach. Yes, absolutely. I mean, like you said, we love hockey. We, you know, we talk about it all the time. We watch it all. It seems like all year round the league um, has such a long season. But any chance I can get to talk about hockey, I'm going to take it. So, um, this definitely was a great first episode to have a lot to talk about after a great playoffs. And uh, I'll be waiting the next few days to see what starts to shift 
Yeah, me too. Me too. I cannot wait. Can't wait for everything that's going to start. It's hard to believe that the season ends and we're already excited for what players are going to be moving. But that is all we have on Puckheads. The Blues win the sta- their first Stanley Cup in 52 years of existence as a franchise. So for Zach Smith, I'm Matt Rosenberg, and this has been Puckheads.